This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Today, our prayer, uh, I mean, sorry, our scripture is 1 Corinthians 5 through 6, 11. So that's all of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 um, and then part of chapter 6. Um, if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able and willing. Okay. Sexuality, sexual immorality defiles the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Sorry, guys, of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, hold on, um, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Lawsuits um, against believers. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that for us. Oh, there we go. I'm live. Good morning, Emmaus. Good morning. Morning, Jean. 
think that's just gonna. Um, I kind of just want to start by thanking Ben uh, for last week. He covered uh, a difficult topic in sort of as we worked through this series in 1 Corinthians, we spent the first few weeks sort of laying the foundation for some of the more practical things that we'll see as we work through the rest of the letter over the next couple of months. And uh, Ben sort of kicked that off for us a little bit last week and dealt with a, a really a tough topic on how we evaluate leaders within the church. And I know just personally for him, there was uh, conviction and just thinking through that on his own. Um, but I want to kind of set the record straight a little bit. Ben mentioned that I uh, save all the hard passages for him. So I feel like if you're paying any attention to the scripture reading this morning, I do not save all the hard passages for Ben. <laughs> so... Uh, Okay. <laughs> so, um, we actually just kind of map it out, and Ben usually covers the third or fourth Sunday of the month, so there's no real conspiring for for who gets who gets which passages there. But I just thought I would clear that up. Um, so, like I said, we started the series talking about some of the fundamental truths that we need to sort of grapple with or that we need to sort of understand in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to move a little faster as we go through some of these big sections. We're also not going to hit every tiny little thing in Corinthians, uh, but we're going to end our series in Corinthians uh, with Easter Sunday talking about how the, we're taught by the Spirit and what that has to do with the resurrection. So we thought that'd be appropriate. It's at the end of the Corinthians, and then I think the plan is to jump back into Isaiah and finish the series there. Uh, or not finished, but kind of go into the next major section before the summer. I want to kind of remind us, though, of the, of, the, of the foundational things that we've been talking about. And I'll bring this up probably at different points as we go through the series. But the, we started by saying, why do we need the Spirit to teach us? And we said that the, because we have the Spirit, we're able to understand all of the things that have been freely given to us by God. Because we actually have the Spirit, we're able to understand all the wonderful things that we have in the beauty of the gospel. Then the, then the sort of the next sort of foundational thing that we talked about in the first few chapters, the next sort of foundational thing is that the Spirit often works in ways that are not plausible, that don't make sense to us, but are powerful. And one of the examples of that was prayer. And I appreciate um, Becca leading us in prayer this morning. It's not, a, it's not plausible that we would get together and go before the Lord and, and pour out our, our thoughts and our needs and our things to him. But, but it's a powerful way that the spirit works. So we talked about how the second thing was how the spirit doesn't work in plausible ways, but works in powerful ways. And then the third sort of foundational thing, the third sort of foundational thing that we went over is that one of the implausible ways the spirit works is that he works our glory and our worth through suffering and weakness. Just like with the Messiah, just like having the mind of Christ, the one who, who suffered and who died and who did some of the most glorious, majestic thing on the face of this planet, the spirit works not in a plausible way through our success or through our worldly wisdom or through what we're able to accomplish. He works through our suffering and through our weakness. So those are some of the sort of foundational things that we, we talked about um, in the first few weeks. And, and we're gonna kind of remind you of those, I hope, as we move through this series, because we went from evaluating our, our leaders in the church and how we evaluate ourselves. So today we're gonna talk about something super practical, um, if a little uncomfortable. We're gonna talk about dealing with sin in the family. We're gonna talk about how we deal with sin in the family. And I think that's, when I say the family, I mean both 
in ourselves as part of the family, dealing with sin in our own hearts, uh, and as well as dealing with sin of, of those around us, those who are in, in our community. So I thought about that, and when I think about dealing with sin, I'll be honest, this wasn't like the most excited I've been to preach a sermon. Like <laughs> dealing with sin in the family is, is a, in some sense like a, a, a difficult thing to wrestle with. And there's, there's a handful of ways where, where dealing with sin can be uncomfortable, can be awkward. Sometimes it can just be exhausting, you know? Like if we have a sin that we're, we're struggling with personally and we, we don't see the Lord change, sometimes that can just be exhausting. Um, sometimes it can, it can be really uncomfortable if, if even if we come from the best place and we, we care about someone and we're concerned about someone or we, and we approach them. When we deal with sin in the family, it can just be uh, not, the most, not the most comfortable thing to do, even within a, a close-knit Christian community, even within when your own GC, that can often be like a really uncomfortable thing. Um, so, it's, so it's tough. We don't, we don't enjoy dealing with sin in the family. It's just not something that comes naturally to us. But I wanted to start with what Paul said in, in the very first couple of verses uh, in 1 Corinthians to sort of give us sort of a, a grounding for why we should deal with sin in the family, why, why we should deal with sin in the family in the first place. And we're gonna have the, the main sort of passages in scripture up on the screen as we work through chapter five and chapter six. But occasionally I'm gonna jump to another part of the letter um, so it just might be helpful to have your phone app or your Bible open. But if you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, this is, this is a really foundational thing for why we should deal with sin in the family. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the, the gathering of God that's in this city, he says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus... And we're not going to redo that whole sermon, but sanctified is this idea of being set apart, being set apart for holy service to the Lord. We're set apart for a specific purpose out of the world. We're sanctified. We're set apart to serve the Lord. And he goes on to say how that looks. He goes, you're sanctified. And, he, and then he goes on to say, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Called to be saints and saints kind of has this uh, additional meaning that's kind of been added on it when, when I joked about the little candles and some things that are related to the Catholic church. But the, the word where we get saints from just means holy ones or holy people. So right off the bat, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church and the very first thing he says is family, Corinthian church, you are set apart in Christ Jesus to serve the Lord and how? In a way that's holy. This is, this is the purpose for your gathering of God in Corinth. This is the very purpose of, of what you're called to do in the Lord is, is to be holy. And holiness has this idea of, of morally pure, of righteous. And we, we say this in a, in a bunch of different ways. You could say we, holiness, is, as Paul says in another place, we uphold the law. The law is good. That's something that we, we promote. One of the ways that we say it at Emmaus that I think is a little bit easier to relate to is we want to look like Jesus. That's holiness. We want to we we look like him in every single aspect of our life. And we want that to come by considering the beauty of the gospel as we're transformed more into the image of Jesus. And all we're saying is that we're called to be holy. 
Those are all sort of the same thing. But Paul, Paul starts off the letter saying that we're called to be holy. We're set apart to be holy to the Lord. So if we're, if we're set apart to be holy, we have to kind of learn as a family to deal with sin. If that's the whole purpose of why we're set apart, then we have to, as a family, learn to deal with sin. And I want to, it's not just, you know, I think about, I grew up in um, a really strict uh, high school, actually kindergarten through 12th grade, and it was super regimented. And, and when I hear these words, like we're called to be holy, we should, you know, that's why I kind of like saying we should look like Jesus when we should obey the law. It sounds like we're called to like look down on people and feel better about ourselves. And I'm not saying that's what was communicated to me in high school because my mom's probably watching, but that's just sort of how, in my sin, that's sort of how I took it. Um, we're called to sort of look down and like, feel like we're better than everybody else. And, that, and that's, not, that's not why we're set apart and called to be holy. We're called to be holy so that we could love others. We're called to be holy because we're in Christ. And Paul goes on in verse three and says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think there's another element of why we're called to be holy. We're called to be holy. We're called to look like Christ because then is when we find grace and peace in the gospel. We're called to be holy because that's when we can really enjoy a phrase that a Puritan I like says, we can really enjoy sweet and free communion with God. Our holiness and our, and our looking like Christ is we can really rest in the beautiful things that we have in the gospel. So it's not just about our purpose to be set apart as holy for God. It's about dealing with sin in the family so that we can enjoy more and more of our fellowship with the Father. One of the uh, sort of analogies, I was, I was thinking about this, I was praying about this, and I kind of thanked the Lord this morning. And if this isn't helpful, I was still thankful for him. I, think, I was like, how can I think about sin and, and it getting in the way of us being able to enjoy and appreciate everything that we have in the gospel. And that, that show Chernobyl came to my mind. So, and it's only, it's only five episodes, so that's the reason why I'm watching it as a TV show. It's not like 15 seasons that I have to commit to. Um, but, but the radiation, the radiation in that, in that show is really like a good picture of what sin is like. Some sins are just so terrible. And I think about the graphite that the guy picks up that his hand is like burnt right off the bat. Some sins are just so wicked that the consequences and the, and the corrupting nature of that sin is, is immediately visible to us. But just like radiation, some sin you don't see. Some sin you don't understand the effects of it even right there. And it's not until later you see that that, time, that whole time, that little bit of sin or the, the little clicks, you know, because it's only a little bit radioactive, has been, has been corrupting me for a period of time and, and keeping me from enjoying the beauty of the gospel. And I think another sort of element to that is, and we'll talk about this as we go through, sin affects all of us. We deal with sin in the family because just like the radioactive material, if I'm in sin, it's gonna affect those people that I'm around. So I just thought that was a sort of a good analogy and we'll kind of come back to that. Um, and as I watched that show, it's just like, you're always kind of on edge because you feel like something is ruining people's lives at, at every moment, even if the little clicky thing isn't going off with the radiation. And, and that's just a good picture of sin. We're not always aware of it, but it's sort of corrupt, corrupting our inner man or our inner woman so that we can't enjoy and sort of rest in the beauty of the gospel. So, so this morning, we're gonna look at this passage 
because we're taking a big section, we're not gonna be able to go over every tiny little detail. Uh, we're gonna kind of walk through and we're gonna see three things that we should do when we deal with sin. Three things that we should do when we're dealing with sin in the family, whether in our hearts or those around us. And then we'll end with one thing we should never do. So three things that we should do and one thing that we should never do. So let's pray and ask the spirit to help us as we open up his word and help us honestly just better deal with sin as a family. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you work powerfully by your spirit and weakness. I thank you that oh, you, you are not hindered by anything. You're not hindered by me. Um, you're not hindered by where we meet or how we meet. Your spirit is capable of transforming us uh, more and more in the image of your son. Lord, you, you have equipped us as a community. You've equipped us, every single one of us, so that we're not lacking nothing as we're made more and more into your image as we enjoy more of that sweet and free communion with you, Lord. So I pray that as we, as we think about just some hard things, that you would remind us of your gospel and that you would remind us that we're, we're dealing with sin so that we can enjoy and appreciate you more, more than ever um, because we want to cleanse out the corruptive nature of what, what is still remaining in us, Lord. So I thank you that you have cleansed us in Christ and we can rest in that. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're just gonna jump in to chapter five and look at the first couple of verses and just start with this idea that if we're gonna deal with sin in the family, if we're gonna deal with sin in the family, the first thing we have to do is grieve or mourn it. So look at the first couple of verses. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has a father's wife. And you, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. I feel like there doesn't have to be a ton of explanation on the sin. It's wicked. It's evil. And Paul says something kind of harsh about casting, casting someone out of the community, but, but, he's, but I want to hit on and we'll talk a little bit more about why, but I want to hit on first, he says, ought you not to mourn? Ought you not to mourn? When there's sin in the community, shouldn't that grieve you? Shouldn't you mourn because of that? And if you look at the previous chapter, chapter four, verse 14, just to kind of give you a sense of where Paul's heart's at, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, in verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became, a fa I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. His beloved children. Here's Paul writing to his beloved children. Writing to the community that he would have been friends with and known for over a year and a half. And says, shouldn't you mourn? Ought you not to mourn? And it's difficult if you look, he goes on in verse three, he says, for though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, you should mourn. But then he takes this like drastic 
kind of extreme measure. And, and there's a, a couple of things to consider on how, why he says this, why he just, he says, cast them out so that they can feel the consequences of their sins so that they could actually be saved. So that they, so they could actually repent and turn and be brought back into the community. And in the second letter, there's actually evidence that this person may have been brought back into the community because of this. But there's a couple of things to consider here. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, it's, a, it's sort of like a, 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 a confusing thing to sort of work through, but this is a unique situation where you have an apostle, you have a very representative of the risen king of Jesus looking at a church who is not only not mourning the sin that's in their community, they're boasting about it. In a sense, they're, they're actually proud and it's hard to even understand. They're, they're proud of the fact that someone in their community is caught up in a relationship with their mother. He says, a sin that even the, 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 the pagans aren't even comfortable with. So we have, a, we have an apostle of Jesus. We have someone in a very specific authoritative place seeing an entire community boast about an exceptionally wicked sin. And he pulls apostolic authority and says, in order to protect this church, cast this person out. And he says that because he knows the corrupting nature, the corrupting nature of sin in the family. This is, this is that radioactive piece of graphite that's burning and destroying the entire community. So as an apostle, he says, because as I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I have authority to do this and I care for my beloved children. You need to cast this person out of the church. And that's what he goes on to say. If you look at verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We have some people in our community that are good at making bread. I won't call them out by name because then you'll want loaves of bread. Um, they, uh, but, but a leavening agent is something that you, you put in the bread and it causes it to rise. So I, I hear, um, I'm not an expert on bread. But you don't see it. Like it's yeast. It just kind of goes in there. You don't see it. And, and you don't have to put a whole lot in there and it affects the whole loaf of bread. So here is Paul mourning this sin because he understands the corruptive power of sin in the family. Here's Paul grieving that his beloved children would be boasting about something that even the culture wouldn't be proud of because of the corruptive nature of that sin. And it's difficult. And I think about our, how we react to sin and two things kind of came to mind and this doesn't maybe cover them all. But I think one way when we react to sin, whether it's in ourselves or in others is we're like annoyed by it. Like, God, why have you like made us not sin? You know, like I'm struggling with this. This is annoying. That person is annoying. They're struggling with something. It's just like something else we have to deal with. There's something that makes my life inconvenient. And uh, uh, the other kind of side is that we just want to be like indifferent. We want to say, well, it's not that big of a deal or, oh, I'm sure someone else is, is concerned for them. Or maybe I'm thinking, I enjoy this. It's not hurting anybody. We get indifferent to these things. And if we're gonna deal with sin in the family, if we're going to begin to deal with sin in the family, Paul is saying the first thing we need to do is grieve it. 
We need to mourn it. It needs to be something that, that stirs us and that grieves us because we understand that a little leaven, we understand it's radioactive in the sense that it can actually destroy myself and it can destroy those in the family. And we need to deal with sin. But the first step is to grieve that. Paul doesn't stop there and we talked a little more, but the next step he's saying, if you wanna deal with sin in the family, you have to take action. Look at what he says in verse seven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he uses two action words there. Cleanse out, do that, cleanse out, act, do something. Celebrate, celebrate the festival. And, it, and he pulls from, he's using these action verbs. He says, don't just mourn this, do something. He pulls from this, the, the, the Passover celebration from, from, is, from Israel. And if you're, if you're in the intensive, this is a very important post-redemptive revelatory event in the covenant of grace. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not in the intensive, this is a really important event in the Bible. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's where God shows how he rescues his people. And they're, they're stuck. They're stuck as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. So God brings miracle after miracle after miracle from Moses and, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting you go. You can't leave. We'll take all the punches you wanna throw at us. You're stuck being slaves. And so what God says, he says, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna bring a judgment so horrific that people will die, that the angel of death will come and the firstborn of every man and beast will just die. I'm gonna bring a judgment so horrific that Egypt is, that I will rescue you out of Egypt and you will, you will no longer be slaves. And this is gonna be so dramatic. You're gonna, you've been here 400 years, but don't even put leaven in your bread. We're leaving tomorrow. And if you need to survive this judgment that's coming, this wrath that's coming on Egypt, you have to take a lamb, keep it in your house, kill it, put blood on the doorposts, eat it, cook it, you know, Eat it, and whatever you don't eat, it has to be burned. So the lamb has to be totally consumed. And if you do that, when I bring this judgment, when I bring this wrath, it will pass over you. It will pass over your house. So every year, Israel celebrates the Passover. And because they didn't even have to put leaven in their bread because they left the next day, they celebrate a week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's how they celebrate. And so... Paul is drawing on this really important event in Christian history. He's drawing on this really important event and saying, if you want to understand what to do, you should not, we should take the leaven out, which is evil and malice, and we should celebrate our new life in the gospel. The fact that we've passed through judgment in the person of Jesus Christ, we should celebrate that with sincerity and truth. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We're not worried about Pharaoh in judgment. We're worried about sin, Satan, and death. And God has poured out all the wrath on that in Christ. And if we're in Christ, he's passed over that. So we can celebrate the beauty of the gospel and say, we are no longer, we are no longer at risk 
of the very wrath of God because it's passed over us. And he says, celebrate that with sincerity and with truth. And he goes on to kind of give us an example. If you look at verses nine, we'll read this whole section. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges the outs, those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And we talked about how this, was a, this is an extreme circumstance where Paul's already said, I'm exercising my apostolic authority. But he's saying, just like he says at the very beginning of the, of the letter, you're a community that's a particularly set apart for holy service to the Lord. That means you're in the family. And if you have people who are saying that they're in the family and nothing has been set apart and nothing has been changed, if you have people that are in the family and are, and are acting as they're not, and, you're, and, you're, and in this situation, they're not even dealing with the sin in, in any way, shape, or form. So that's why Paul says, cast this person out. But if you have people who are claiming to be in the family and are not dealing with sin in themselves or in others, you need to do something about that. That's not celebrating the Passover in sincerity and truth. That's celebrating with malice and evil, with deception. So if you've really been set apart by the Holy Spirit, if you've really been set apart for holy service unto the Lord, that's, that's gonna be someone who then deals with sin because that's the, the purpose of why they were set apart in the first place. And that's someone who is growing more and more and resting in the beauty and wonder of the gospel. So they can grow more and more in fellowship with the Father. Thinking about how you can celebrate the Passover in, in sincerity and truth. And this is this extreme example of a church that's basically ignoring what is a very despicable sin. There are lots of other ways we can act on sin before we get to this point. And nothing in the, the passage here is ignoring any of that. We, um, this is like an extreme of an extreme. And that's why Paul is, is acting in the way he's doing. But there's a lot of things we can do. If we grieve or we mourn sin, we can, you can act in, in much less extreme ways. But this is ultimately where things head if our, if, if our hearts are hardened and we don't deal with sin. Sometimes acting... Sometimes acting is just saying, Lord, I enjoy this sin. I don't grieve it. Help me. Use your spirit to change my view of this particular sin. Maybe I don't even think it's a big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal, but it's still sin. Maybe acting is just going before the Lord and saying, Lord, help me mourn this. Help me grieve this. Help this be something that I see as corrupting even if I don't understand how and where and what it's doing. Maybe that's the first step with acting. Another step when we're dealing with sin in the family that we could just do, we could just act, 
is confessing. Sometimes, sometimes we don't want to deal with sin because it's hidden. We don't feel like we have to. We think that it's not doing anything. Sometimes the best thing to deal with sin in our own hearts is to bring it to light. In Ephesians, he talks about bringing sin to light so that the light can make it no longer darkness. That's, the, that's, that's how we're transformed more and more into the beauty of Christ. Sometimes acting is going to someone you care about and expressing that you care about that person. Just expressing that your love for them, letting them know that you're praying for them. Sometimes it's something that's really difficult and maybe acting is finding someone in the community that you trust and saying, I need encouragement. I need help. I need someone to come alongside me and help me deal with this sin. None of these things, this is a, this is a family effort. None of this stuff is meant to be me on my island dealing with it alone. That's a, that's a foreign concept to everything in the New Testament. But there's a, there's a lot of a lot of actions we can take if we grieve sin before we get to this point in Corinthians. Um, you could, uh, Cole preached a sermon on sort of what we call classically church discipline. The things I just mentioned have nothing to do with that. And those were quite a few actions that we can still take in dealing with sin. And even if we're dealing with sin in a way that's unrepentant, there are multiple steps and processes so that we can continue to keep people in the family so that we can be set apart for holy service to the Lord. So there's a lot of things we can do if we really grieve sin, that we can act, we can actually do something. But I think a lot of times we don't, we don't act even with the simple stuff. Maybe we don't even like wrestle with it in our own hearts. We don't act a lot of times because the things that I mentioned to one degree or another, include a form of suffering. Include a form of suffering. If I get interrupted while I'm working, I don't usually respond well. Um, and I'm working on that. But that's my sin in that situation. There are many others. Um, I respond in an offensive way. And it usually is directed at Bridget. And she could have the best intentions and, and she can come to me trying to serve me. But if there's like an interruption in a train of thought, I'm not, I, be, I, I act out in a, in, a, in a way that does not, that is not loving, that does not include Bridget is more important than myself. And, and there are times when I like check that and I, she leaves and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna think about scripture, whatever it is. And I'm just like, I feel guilty because I'm like, even in this moment where I'm like, don't bother me, I'm studying scripture. You know, like even in this, I don't say it like that, but in my heart, it's, it's a form of suffering to walk out the door and say, hey, I'm sorry, babe. I was actually, I was upset. Um, or ask that you would forgive me. And, you know, sometimes she doesn't even notice, but, but it's just to confess a sin is, is a sort of a form of, of suffering. And we don't, we don't enjoy that. That's not, that's not something we want to do when we deal with sin. If we go to someone we care about, there's a risk of that relationship fracturing. This doesn't always, that we, we have to rely on the Lord. That's a form of suffering we want to deal with sin. And that's why Paul talks about grieving sin. We should grieve sin if we want to deal with it in the family. Paul talks about acting on sin if we want to deal with it in the family. But the third thing we should do is he says, we should be willing to suffer. We should be willing to suffer if we want to deal with sin. Look at chapter six. We'll read a big section here. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, 
Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before the church, before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. There is the um, interesting verse of judging the angels and there is a a handful of ways to understand that. But I think one of the, the easiest ways to make sense of that Paul says that in Christ today, we're already seated in the heavenly places on the throne. So there's a sense, there's a sense that even today we are in Christ sharing in his rule and reign and his authority. And someday what we, what we perceive by faith, someday what we perceive by faith will be, will be something that we see. Someday we'll be face to face with him and we'll be made like him. He says in Revelation to to the one who conquers, I will grant to rule with me as I rule. Um, How that works itself in history and time, we don't have time to get into some of the conversations around that. But there's this idea that as we're united to Christ, earlier he says, as we have the spirit, we're able to discern all things. Spiritual people are, are able to discern things because we have wisdom that comes from God. Wisdom that comes from God in the word and in his spirit. Because we have those things and we're meant to be a community drawn together in unity, we should be able to work some things out between us. We should be able to work some things out between us. And this is an instance where it's not even like they're getting, you know, help. We have people, they're in our community, but it's okay to go outside the community and say, hey, you're, you have finance experience. I need help sort of understanding that thing. We, have, we go outside of our community for medical things all the time because none of us, well, there's a few of us in here that should do that, but most of us shouldn't be involved in those things. Um, so he's not talking about having help outside the community. He's talking about using the outside world to get something out of someone in your family. You're using the outside world to get someone get something out of someone in your family. And, he, and what this makes sense of the next verse, because if we're spiritual people, we have the mind of Christ. If we're spiritual people, we have the, the sense that we suffer to glory. We have the sense that the spirit works glory and majesty and beauty in our suffering and our weakness. And so he goes on in verse seven to say, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but even you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? This is what it means to have the mind of Christ when we deal with sin. We have to be willing to suffer. Everyone I go to that I may be concerned about, even if I'm coming from a good place, may not appreciate what I have to say. Dealing with my own sin I may have to suffer. I'm gonna, I, I have to suffer for that. I think about things that we get addicted to. It's suffering when we pull, try to pull ourselves away from that stuff. If we're gonna deal with sin, we have to be willing to suffer. Sometimes suffering comes in, in taking the time out to consider your sin. We're busy, we like to do things. But just sitting there and dwelling on it or asking the Lord to help us grieve it or mourn it, it's a form of suffering. And if we're gonna deal with sin in the family, we have to be willing to suffer. And the beautiful thing, 
the thing that I, that I wanted to remind you at the beginning is that the suffering and weakness is the way that the spirit works. It's through our suffering and our weakness that we begin to understand the beauty of all the things that we have in the gospel. It's through our, our suffering as we deal with sin that we more and more appreciate everything that we have in Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to say, yes, you should mourn sin because it's corrupting. You should, you should act on sin so that we can be a community that's set apart for service to the Lord. You should be willing to suffer because you have the mind of Christ. But the one thing, the one thing you should never do is underestimate the power of the spirit. If you're gonna deal with sin, you should never underestimate the power of the spirit. Look at verse nine. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he's saying the same thing he's been saying. This is, if, you're, if you've been rescued from the Passover lamb that is Christ, you're gonna celebrate in sincerity and in truth. If you've been called out by God objectively by the Holy Spirit, that's gonna, that's gonna look like a life of holy service to the Lord. There, there, is a, there is a change that we go from not being called out to being called out. We go from celebrating with leaven of evil and malice to celebrating with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the... In this passage then, there's a, there's a controversial word. There's a word that I think weighs on us. And I think it's a word that, that causes us to underestimate the power of the spirit to transform who we are. And the word is were, W-E-R-E, -E, because it's past tense because it's something that the spirit actually does for us. Look at the next verse. In verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. There's actually a transformation when you're called out and set apart for holy service to the Lord. You were washed. You were washed. You were cleansed. I think of Peter, when Jesus is gonna wash his feet, he says, Lord, I want you to wash the whole thing then if you're gonna wash me. And Jesus says, you've been cleansed. You only need to wash the feet because you've been walking around. You've been cleansed. This is what he's saying to us. You were sanctified. Something objectively changed. You were given the spirit. You were not set apart in the world. And now you are set apart. You're set apart for this purpose to act on sin. This is why God gave you the Holy Spirit. Do not underestimate what he's capable of doing. This is what happened to you for this purpose. And he says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, you were justified. That's not a word we use a ton, but it's this idea that God the Father has declared you righteous. God the Father has declared you legally, regardless of what you are in this world, God has declared that you are legally righteous. So because of that, 
because he's declared you as righteous, you deserve his presence. Because you are righteous, because you are holy, because you are washed, because you are sanctified, the father enjoys, looks forward and deserves to be in your presence. This is how we enjoy more of the sweet and free communion with the Lord. This is when we're dealing with sin and we we know that the spirit works through suffering and works through weakness, we're guaranteed to enjoy the presence of the Lord as he works in our life because we've been justified. This is the the beauty of the gospel. This is the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can ask, we can ask the Lord to say, Lord, help me grieve. Help me mourn this sin. We can ask him because we've been washed. We've been washed so we understand when there's something that has a corrupting effect on us. We can, we can actually act. We can actually go and confess. We can actually go before the Lord and pray. We can, we can meditate on wonderful, beautiful things in scripture. We can, we can consider our life in light of scripture. We can do those things because the spirit has actually set us apart for that. And when we suffer because of those things, we've been justified. We've been justified. So the Lord considers us like he considers his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. That's how the Lord thinks of you in whom he is well pleased. And the more and more we begin to deal with sin in the family, both in our hearts and in those around us, the more and more we begin to deal with sin, the more and more we appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. The more and more we really begin to enjoy the sweet and free communion of the Lord. Who doesn't want more of that? And I think about conversations that I have sometimes with people, and myself included. We say, man, I know, Aaron, you know, this thing about the gospel is really encouraging. You know, it's a good thing. I'm glad, you know, but I'm struggling over here. And I don't like feel it to be something that's, that's genuine to affect my daily life. And I think we all kind of have to struggle with that at different points and different times. And, and we've been in places where we just feel the presence of the Lord and it's encouraging and we wish we could just stay there. And we wish that, that that's how we walked around day after day in our life. And, it, and it, we, we struggle though at times to sort of say, why is the gospel meaningful to me right now? I, I see the words, I understand the logic of this, but it doesn't really seem to affect me. And I think sometimes we, we feel unhealthy in that sense because sort of like the radiation, we have sin that's, that's corrupting us. And this isn't always the case, but it's a good chance to, to look and reflect and say, what, what sin have I been ignoring? What sin do I not wanna deal with? What sin am I hiding? What sin do I think is not a big deal? Because the, the corrupting nature of sin makes it hard for us to be healthy. Makes it hard for us to say, yes, the gospel is beautiful, not just because I know what it is, but because I genuinely see it as attractive. Because I can't help but be drawn towards it. And that's why we, that's ultimately why we need to deal with sin in the family. That's why Paul can say about his beloved children, ought you not to mourn? He cares. He wants them to rest in the beauty of the gospel. And that's the, the wonder 
of being gifted with the spirit. And thanks be to God for a spirit that we should never underestimate. A spirit that's actually able to help us deal with sin in the family. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are welcome in this place. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of any cleansing we've done. Not because of whatever service we could accomplish. You're welcome in this place because we stand in your son. And you enjoy fellowship with your son like no one, like nothing we can imagine. So you enjoy fellowship with the people who are united to him. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that wonderful, beautiful truth of your gospel. I pray that as we clamor to have that impact our lives more, that we would look for the corrupting nature of sin in our own lives and in our family, Lord, that, that this would be something we do out of love. This would be something that grieves us, something that, that, that appropriately humbles us, Lord. We fall so far short, and yet you are still working in us through your spirit, Lord. Help us not underestimate the spirit. Help us not underestimate what he's able to do in our lives so that we could, we could more and more enjoy and bask in the beauty of everything you are for us, Lord. Help us enjoy more of the sweet and free communion with you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to sing and worship you and sort of reorient our lives around what you are saying in your word, Lord. Pray that this would just weigh on us even this week. And that as, as, as sin comes to light, that there would be grace and there would be kindness and there would be joy that you're working to transform us, Lord. I thank you for that. In your name I pray, amen.